Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we continue our series, The Authority of the King, from the book of Matthew, and we'll be looking at chapter 9, verses 35 to 38 today. So let's join Dr. Newfeld as he brings us a message titled, The Harvest is Plentiful. We live in a day of the unprecedented growth of the Christian church. Now, I'm going to present you with a series of numbers, and I need to be quick to say that I have no way of either verifying or evaluating the numbers, but but I do pass it on because it's said quite frequently, and I'm sure that these numbers do reflect, at the very least, a very rough picture of what's going on. So, for instance, in 1900, there were approximately 10 million Christians in Africa. By the year 2000, that number stood at 360 million, and if estimates are correct, that by the year 2025, that number should grow to 633 million. In that same year, the number of Christians in Asia, they're going to be around 640 million, which is about the same number of Christians as there are in Latin America. By the middle of this century, estimates are that there will be about 3 billion Christians in the world. Again, I need to hasten to add that the counting of Christians is always somewhat suspect. You know, I've been in countries that are estimated 80% Christian or 90% Christian, and in them I have found, from my encounter with people, a high degree of nominalism and a lack of understanding of the gospel or even the heart of the ministry of Jesus. But nonetheless... Even though in many places, in name only, still they are, I guess, being counted. In case you think that Islam will be the largest religion in the world, I think we need to think about that again. The amount of nominalism in Islam is easily as high as in Christianity, and in most cases, I argue it's even higher. And then there are those who argue that by 2050, there will be as many Pentecostals in the world as there will be Muslims. If that's true, think about that. And furthermore, no one is rightly counting the number of underground churches that are beginning to form in the, in the heart of Muslim countries. In many Muslim countries, religious persuasion is a matter of convenience and not conviction. And also in nations like Iran and in some areas in North Africa, there is a vibrant strain of fervent Christianity which is growing and in some of the most persecuted places on earth. As well, we're beginning to see a growth of the Christian faith in places like India, a place where the church has hardly made inroads in the past, and yet there are reasons to rejoice. You know, some time ago, the late Charles Colson pointed out that in those churches in the West that have become liberal, you know, where biblical truth is being denied and where historic Christian doctrine is both ignored and contradicted, there has been nothing but decline. But in those churches where Christians do not compromise their faith, in in those churches where the church stands in opposition to the prevailing culture, but stands with ancient Christian doctrines, the opposite is the case. Christianity is on an unprecedented rise worldwide. Jerry Jenkins, in his book, The Next Christendom, The Coming Global Christianity, shows that, that biblical orthodoxy is winning converts at a record number so that around the world with with the new globalization, we're seeing that it's Jesus that people around the world are crowding to hear. Now, Jenkins believes we're on the precipice of the greatest move of the Christian church in history. Now, Now, these no doubt are very optimistic reports. 
you know, because many of us have heard of the rapid growth of the Christian faith in, you know, in places like South Korea and China and in unlikely places like Iran and Indonesia, places where, where Islam would have wished to prevent that phenomenon. But there are great challenges. Still to this day, a, a great part of the world lives in places where there is no viable Christian faith. And furthermore, there are those who argue that by 2050, Islam and Christianity will be exactly the same size, and that in the long term, at least so those experts argue, they say Islam will win. You know what, this kind of research comes from people like Samuel Huntington, who simply tracks demographics and not underground churches, nor the growth of the church in the global south. Huntington's numbers simply reflect the view that, that people are what they are, and, and the growth of religions can be measured in terms of demographics. And since Islam is found in the third world where the birth rate is high, well, he makes his conclusions as he does. Well, in truth, in the future, only the minority of Christians will be Caucasian European Christians. If Christ delays his coming in the future, as some have said, the typical Christian will be a woman living in a Nigerian village or a Brazilian shantytown or a large Chinese city. We are seeing the most dramatic change of the center of the Christian faith. So the real question for the future is this. Will Christianity be able to penetrate the 1040 window? into those countries located between 10 degrees and 40 degrees north of the equator. And that includes the countries of North Africa, the Middle East, and India. And in my mind, this is still the great unfinished task before the church. And it requires, first, great and sustained prayer. And second, it does require that we see the unfinished task of world missions, or that the era of world missions is not over. Of course, what we are seeing now began 2,000 years ago in Galilee. And as we're studying Matthew, we have been seeing that the popularity of Jesus has been mushrooming. But this creates difficulties. I mean, how does one handle these crowds? What's to be done for those who, who can't get close to Jesus? How do you instruct them? And so our text today is Matthew 9, 35 to 38. It says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. So let's understand the context of what we just read. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 4, verses 23 to 25. There we read, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. You will notice that Matthew 9.35 has almost the exact same wording as Matthew 4.23. That's important to notice because we must understand how Matthew is presenting his portrait of Jesus. Remember first that Matthew is an eyewitness of Jesus. He's seen the things he writes about. They're, they're burned into his memory. 
Second, remember that it's not Matthew's intention to tell the story of Jesus chronologically. Rather, he's grouping the major events of Jesus' ministry into categories. So he begins with the birth of Jesus, then his temptation, and then the beginning of his ministry. Then he gives us the statement we've just read. He's going throughout all Galilee. He's teaching. He's preaching. He's also healing every disease, and he's attracting larger and larger crowds. And then he illustrates that. First, Matthew relays Jesus' teaching. That's in Matthew 5 to 7. It's the section we call the Sermon on the Mount. And then second, Matthew relays Jesus' healing ministry. That's in Matthew chapter 8 and 9. That's the section we've just finished on miracles. And then having told us of Jesus' teaching and then of his healing, he repeats what he said earlier. Jesus is traveling through Galilee. He's teaching. He's healing. And his fame is spreading. So then the explanation for the mass of crowds are both what he is saying and what he's doing. And that's what Matthew has told us up till now. Now, we can put it this way. There's a great gospel. See, that can't be overlooked. Understand, there is no gospel like the one Jesus is presenting. I mean, think about his teaching. In the Sermon on the Mount, he begins with the words, Blessed are the poor in spirit, or blessed are those who know just how spiritually impoverished they are. The kingdom of heaven, which I am introducing, is given to them. The kingdom of heaven is already broken into the present realm. I'm telling you, you can enter the kingdom now. And if you doubt me, then watch me. What would account for the blind seeing, the the lame walking, the lepers being cleansed, the deaf hearing, the dead being raised up, and more? What would account for men and women finding their way into the kingdom? Immediately, I think of men like Matthew, the tax collector, not welcome in the synagogue. I mean, along with his reprobate friends, they're spiritually impoverished. But the kingdom of heaven is extended to them. So if you doubt that this is the day when the, when the kingdom of heaven is breaking into the present, if you doubt that the great end time events are right now being felt, that God has stepped into the realm of human affairs, then, then open your eyes, says Matthew, and have a look at what's going on. The most remarkable thing the world has ever seen is right then happening. The king of the universe has stepped into his creation and the crowds, they're getting larger and larger all the time because they want to see this. This month, request your free copy of the five message series, Lessons for the Church, as our free Bible resource on CD. This is a special compilation of messages from Dr. Neufeld that speaks directly into the life of the church. From the birth of the church to Christ's return, God has created and chosen the church to be his means for communicating the gospel to the world. In these selected messages, Dr. Neufeld presents the church as it was designed and how it remains vital, relevant, and essential for our day. Please request your copy of Lessons for the Church today and remember to pray and support your local church, the churches in your community, and in fact, around the world. Call for your copy of Lessons for the Church at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Of course, we know how the book of Matthew will end. Jesus will die on the cross for the sins of the spiritually impoverished. He will pay for their sins with his blood. 
He will be raised from the dead. He will offer eternal life to anyone who believes. And he will commission his disciples to go into all the world and preach this gospel, making followers of Jesus from every race and tribe and language and tongue. And once this gospel has gone truly global, he will return and he will consummate his kingdom, ruling and reigning forever over all things. See, understand this. There is no gospel like this in the world, certainly not among the Pharisees and the religious teacher of Jesus' day. Their path to salvation was one of external righteousness, doing enough rules to get you right with God. But if that was true then, it's still just as true now. See, I love to say this because for those who were raised in the Christian faith and are not aware of other faiths, you know, it's often surprising to you to hear this, but you've got to hear it. There is no faith in the world that teaches that God is love outside of the Bible. There is no faith in the world that tells us of a righteous God who will not tolerate human sin and yet has found a way to forgive transgression and still remain the righteous God. There is no faith in the world that teaches that that God entered into the human race and that he has already begun to reign. There is no faith in the world that teaches the gospel of the kingdom with a king who has already begun to reign. I mean, for instance, in Islam, salvation is a matter of works. Allah is pictured as holding a scale in which your sins are weighed against your righteousness. Whichever way the scale tips is where you're going to go. The spiritually impoverished need not apply. They're not blessed for the spiritually impoverished will see the scales tip in the other direction. In Buddhism, to reach nirvana, you must follow an eightfold path of enlightenment. Buddhism is plain on this matter. I, I visited a Buddhist temple some time ago. I was given a tract on the basic teachings of Buddhism. I read it with great interest. It simply said, and I'm quoting it, in Buddhism, there is no God to save you. You, you must save yourself. But what if you're, you're so spiritually impoverished that you can't save yourself? In Hinduism, the goal is to get off the endless cycle of reincarnation and come to a state where your insignificant identity is lost in Brahman. To get there, you must follow one of four roads. The first is the road of religion, duties, and ceremonies. The second is the road of knowledge and enlightenment. The third is the road of devotion to one of thousands of Hindu gods. And finally, there is the road of meditation and yoga. But I mention all of this only to say that, again, it's up to you. What shall be done for the spiritually impoverished who can't walk any road? But what other options are there? Well, in the, in the Western world, people live in a predominantly secular culture where children are being taught not to think of God at all or about the kingdom of heaven. Well, what then? With that, the good life consists of anything you can get here and now. No matter how hard you strive or don't strive, the end is going to be the same. Death and the end of all your hopes and dreams. And Jesus, well, do you remember what he says? Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus is gathering those who have no hope. He is going after the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the, the meek and the lowly. He is picking up those who are desperate and those who have no helper. He's crowding his ranks with sinners and reprobates, and he pays for their sins, and he heals their diseases, and he promises them eternal life. There's simply no one else that offers that. And Matthew has more to say. Look at Matthew 9, 36. 
when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So notice the word compassion. When Luke tells of Christ's parable of the Good Samaritan, he uses the same word, compassion. A man is going from Jerusalem to Jericho, a well-known roadway that had the the dubious reputation for for being one of the most dangerous roads in the area. It was filled with thieves and murderers. This man fell among thieves and was left to bleed and die on the road. And when the Samaritans saw him, he had compassion. And that means, of course, that he put him on his donkey and, and he took him to help and he paid his medical bills and any other expenses. And that's just how Jesus saw these people. They were like sheep without a shepherd. And if you have any experience with sheep, well, you might know that they might just be the world's most vulnerable animals. They have no natural protection against predators. Were it not for shepherds, sheep could not survive. And here is Jesus picturing these crowds as harassed. The image is of sheep being torn by hostile animals. Without a shepherd, they're doomed. And if they have no one to help them, if if they have no savior, if they have no one who will remove the burden from their backs, they're going to die. And here we seem to have a double image. On the one hand, the shepherds of Israel are the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the synagogue rulers. But they've abandoned the sheep and simply abused the sheep. They've put on them burdens they can't bear. On the other hand, the predators who harass them, well, those also are the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. See, I can't help but wonder whether Jesus has Ezekiel 34 in mind. It's a a prophecy against the religious teachers in Israel. And and here's what Ezekiel says in in chapter 4, verses 3 and verse 5. You eat the fat, you clothe yourself with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd and they became food for all the wild beasts. See, here's a question I need to ask. Jesus saw people like sheep. Does that seem right to you? See, we're constantly being told that people make up their own minds, that we we have a country of free thinkers. But is that really the case? There's an interesting study that was done in the University of Leeds in England. In this study, researchers put 200 people in a room and they were told to move around wherever they wanted to. But, But unknown to them was the fact that a few people in the room were told where to walk. And eventually, every time, the crowd followed most of the people were completely unaware that they were being led. See, the same is true for every culture, including ours. I have a look at fashion. Have a look at at popular views of morality. Have a look at everything from church attendance to buying trends. Whenever the wind changes, most people simply follow, never knowing they're being led. It is who we are. We're sheep. Jesus knew this about people, and instead of sneering and being condescending or shaking his head, he's moved with compassion. He knows how easy it is to rip sheep apart. See, let me give you an example. In our culture, we're told that sex should not necessarily be tied to marriage. In our culture, numbers get thrown around, but the idea is that most couples will begin having sex a little over a month after their first date. Movies have been made to mock those who wait until marriage. I mean, we have titles like 40-year-old virgin, and that causes the world to laugh. Who last saw a movie where a, a couple fell in love and did not go to bed but waited for marriage? And the sheep who were once told to wait are now told not to, and they follow. And the result? One in four children are now aborted. Then there are the diseases. You know, when I was young, all we ever heard about was gonorrhea and syphilis. 
Now there is pelvic inflammatory disease in women, HIV and AIDS, chlamydia, genital herpes, bacterial vaginosis, scabies, pubic crab lice, something called HPV, which can lead to cancer, some forms of hepatitis, on and on the list goes. Did you know that every year in the United States alone, 12 million new STDs are reported? Many of these can be managed but never cured. Did anyone in the movies get these diseases? Did James Bond hop in the sack and get genital herpes and that infected every partner he ever had after that? Well, probably not. But that happens in real life all the time. And then, did the sheep enjoying the movies notice that people engaging in unmarried sex after several partners are now emotionally unable to commit to faithfulness for a lifetime? Did the movies ever show an abortion with pictures of a real dead human child, fully formed, now thrown into a wastebasket? Did they depict, after the abortion, a higher likelihood of breast cancer? Did they show broken families, wounded children, broken promises, and a lifetime of scars? None of that. Just mockery of the 40-year-old virgin, just howling laughter. The sheep are simply following the leaders of the herd, and they are being ravaged. The harvest, Jesus said, is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And unless the laborers go, what shall become of the sheep? There's so much more to say. Join us tomorrow. John, thanks so much for today's message. Uh, uh, there's some passion that was coming out, and I agree with you. You know, the way we represent what life should be like in the movies is so so counter to to Scripture and to God's desires for us. But, you know, you were excited at the end, and you said there's so much more to say. So where are we going to go tomorrow? Yeah, I want to make a distinction between this negative view, which some believers have. You know, the world is going to hell in a handbasket, and it's just going to get worse. So tie a knot at the end of the rope and hang on till Jesus comes again. And what I want to do is contrast that with Christ's view. The, the harvest, he said, is plentiful. There are far more people that are harassed and helpless who are looking for a shepherd, who are looking for the very gospel that Jesus has to offer. So I'm going to present the most hopeful, hopeful scenario imaginable, which I'm going to argue is indeed the scenario that Jesus presents. I think the Bible presents us with the two images. One is that, yes, things will get worse in the end, but at the same time, the opportunities will become multiplied in the end. That's what I want to say. Thanks so much, John. We're looking forward to that tomorrow. So join us right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Back to the Bible Canada exists to disciple God's people through Bible teaching that strengthens the church and builds the kingdom. We believe the church is essential to God's people, and in uncertain days, your prayers and support of the church is critical as God uses it to advance the gospel. To encourage and equip God's people, we're offering Dr. Newfeld's new series, Lessons for the Church, on CD for free. Request a copy for yourself, a friend, or place it in the church library. Back to the Bible Canada exists to build disciples who know the Bible and serve the church. So we encourage you to stand with your local congregation. Refresh your hearts towards it. Be engaged with its ministry. Extend grace to the saints. By caring for your church, you're loving the family of God.
For more information or to order your free CD copy of Lessons for the Church, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.